All right, everybody, if I could have you take a seat. That would be great. I know, we're, we're doing two minutes of family tonight. Sorry, we're cutting it from four minutes down to two minutes of family. Sorry, we're going to try to end on time. It's good to see you guys. Welcome to Coastline, especially for those of you who are watching online. Welcome. Hey, Nan, how are you? Merry Christmas, everyone. I hope you're doing well. Wasn't Benny great? Wasn't that good? He's amazing. You know, uh, my wife is a wedding planner, and I am a pastor, which means that we end up doing a lot of weddings. Sometimes we get to do weddings together, uh, but every summer we end up doing just an absolute ton of them. And yet, uh, both of us agree that the most beautiful wedding that we've ever been a part of was actually the same wedding. It is our favorite one. It is one that was really unlike any other, and part of it had to do with the fact that it had involved one of my former students, a, a high school student who came through the ministry, and so there was a deep personal connection between Melinda and I and the bride, and we were just so excited to be asked. It was in Santa Barbara, which is already heaven already. I mean, Santa Barbara is clearly a place that God likes better than anywhere else other than the South Bay. Uh, just an amazing place, and it was actually in a museum in Santa Barbara that was a historic building. So it was this adobe kind of courthouse with this large fountain outdoors. It was just absolutely beautiful. Now, the bride had been a Broadway singer, and so a uh, beautiful young woman. All the bridesmaids were actresses on Broadway, so just beautiful talented, stunning women on the bride's side, and the groom had been a Harvard football player. Now, the thing about uh, playing football at Harvard, there's no scholarships there. And so you have to be smart and be a football player to kind of make the team, which doesn't really happen very often, but this was him. He was that guy. Uh, and the entire uh, football team is full of these really smart, really good-looking guys who are just in shape. And I just had never seen a couple as in love as the two of them. So the, um, the aisle down to the, um, the place where I was standing to marry them, it actually had a bend in it. And so as she began to go down the aisle, she couldn't actually see the groom. And so she grabbed her mom's hand and she actually ran down the aisle, pulling her mom behind her until she could actually see him. And once she got there, he, he put his arm around her and he held her like this throughout the entire ceremony. Now, when we got to the uh, reception, you have singers that are there performing. They're grabbing the microphone. They're doing these kinds of songs. It was just this incredible moment where you really thought, uh, I am experiencing something right now. Like, my, I, like you were grateful to be there. Like not sort of I'm grateful to be at your wedding, but you felt like your own understanding of love and romance had kind of deepened in that moment. And you thought, I just can't believe what I'm seeing. I've never been a part of a wedding like this. And that's what made it all, so sh all the more shocking when they divorced in less than a year. Uh, he had an affair, cheated on her, left her for another woman. Uh, and it was just completely astounding to everyone. And the, that memory has stuck with me. I don't know if I've ever really gotten over it. And, and I keep asking myself, what was that moment at that wedding? What was it really? Was that 
really love, or, or maybe, maybe that was just infatuation. Maybe that's just two people who are so drawn together in that moment that they can't see the weaknesses or the flaws in the relationship. They can't see what doesn't work, and so they look past the shortcomings in the relationship due to the things that are drawing them to each other. Maybe, maybe it was just infatuation. Or, or maybe it was just lust. Maybe it's just two people who look at each other and they're so passionately drawn to each other physically that they can't say no. And so what we're experiencing in that moment, it looks like love, but maybe it was just really lust. Or, or maybe it was about companionship. Maybe it was two people who were tired of being alone, and so they found each other for a moment, and it seemed that this person was maybe a solution to that aloneness, and so that's what drew them together. Or maybe it was friendship. It was this chemistry that they'd had over time, and they thought we can turn that into a marriage. Maybe it was any, all of those things. Or maybe it was just a beautiful wedding, and, and what we were seeing that day was what $75,000 will get you. It could have been really any of those things, but here's what I, I know for certain, is that if you're to go ask the bride or the groom today, what was it, even they couldn't tell you. Even they couldn't tell you exactly where it went wrong or why it went wrong. It is confusing even to them about what happened, and that's just the thing about love. It really resists definition. As soon as you try to put a descriptor on it, it kind of slips through your fingers. It's hard for us to describe it. And sometimes you swear that you have it, only to find out years later that you didn't. That you really didn't have love. Or perhaps you do have it, but you don't realize it until it's gone. And then suddenly you're kicking yourself for the moment that got away. And so really, whenever we're going to talk about love, you're, you're attempting to describe the indescribable. Something that's going to always be challenging for us to put words to. And even the Bible seems to be clear that love is something that's difficult to define. In 1 Corinthians 13, that is the famous love chapter. Paul is going to use 15 different verbs to describe love. He basically says it's kind of like this and kind of like that. And he almost stacks words on top of each other because there's no simple definition. It is all of these things. It is so many different things. It is being patient. It is being kind. It's not boasting. It is not keeping any record of wrongs. It is believing all things. It is never proud and it doesn't fail. It's almost like the Bible is saying that love is something like this. Well, it tries to find the words to kind of describe it itself. In fact, maybe the best place that we're going to get to in the scriptures when we're going to talk about love comes out of 1 John 4.10. It says this, that this is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us. It sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so if we want to truly understand love, it begins not looking to other people, not looking for it within ourselves, not trying to attach it to a feeling, but it says if you really want to understand love, look at God. It is his character. And if you want to understand exactly what that means to say that love is God's character, love is seen in God's affection for sinners and the actions he does on their behalf. It is his heart for sinners. It is not a definition of love. The Bible says it is the definition of love. And if that's true, if God is love and his affection and his actions for sinners, if that is love, well, then that means that Christmas is the holiday of love. 
that is the defining emotion. And we are tonight celebrating the love candle, celebrating the love that Jesus has for us. During this entire season, we've been keeping the room dark because that we believe that Advent is a, is a season of expectation. It is of waiting. It is looking forward to, yes, the birth of Christ in the manger, but also his return to come rule and reign over all things. And so tonight, we're going to be focusing on love and what exactly it means for God to have affection for us uh, as sinners ourselves. We're going to look today uh, by focusing on God's love for one specific person, his love for David. David has a very unique relationship with God where we're told that he is a man after God's own heart, and God loves him in a very unique way. And because he loves him, he says that he's going to give his love to the son of David, which is a very Christmas title that sometimes we don't exactly know what to do with. And because he's going to love the son of David, it's also going to open up the door for all of us to experience the love of God. And it begins here on Christmas. We're going to begin in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to move to Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read 2 Samuel in a moment, but first let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in. I won't ask you to stand tonight. Let me pray. Lord, God, um, Lord, I, I just want to begin by telling you that I love you. Lord, I love you. And Lord, I love you because you have loved me. And in fact, any sort of expression of love that we might ever have for each other or for you, God, it pales in comparison. And so God, today would you help us to see your love for us more clearly, uh, more purely. Lord, would you help us to realize how much you love us and would that kindle our own love? God, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The story of God's love for us, it really begins with God's love for King David. Fleming Rutledge, who's a pastor who I've quoted quite a bit in this series, she has this great quote about King David. She says that David was not only a man's man, he was a woman's man. Uh, that means that he was, yes, rugged and courageous. He was a warrior. He was a brilliant tactician. He had incredible, incredibly loyal friends, but he was also handsome, and he was sensitive, and he was thoughtful, and he was an artist, and he was a poet, and he was a musician. And David is incredibly devout. He loves God with all of himself. He loves God with his entire heart, and he never wavers in his love for him. His heart doesn't chase after other gods. It chases sin sometimes, but he always believes that God is worthy of worship. And in 2 Samuel, David builds a huge house for himself. He builds a palace. And then when he looks at it, he becomes convicted that God does not have a house as big as his own. And he says, I'm going to build God a house. I'm going to build God a temple. And this will be my gratitude to him. This will be the way that I show God my love. I'm going to build a house for the Lord. But God won't let him do it. God says, that's not for you to do, David. He says, in fact, that work to build him a house is going to be done by a son that is yet to come. This is out of 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 to 16. The Lord Yahweh declares to you uh, that the Lord Yahweh himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and your blood, and I'm going to establish his kingdom. 
He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever." So there's a few things in there that I want to kind of highlight. He tells him he's going to establish a kingdom. Now, David established a kingdom through battle, through war, through fighting against Saul's army. And God says his kingdom is going to be established by God. God is going to do it and that your son will not have to fight for it, but God is the one who's going to do it. Uh, he tells David that this son of his is going to be, build a temple for him. He says, David, you have too much blood on your hands. You're not innocent enough to build me a house, so I'm going to raise up one who will be pure, and they will be able to undertake this uh, endeavor. He says that a throne of his is going to be established forever. As a king, you were always worried that your lineage, your line was going to end, and that your son would end up losing the throne, and that certainly happens. It happens to Saul before David. He, he loses the throne, and David takes it over. He says, that's never going to happen for your family. Your family will always have the throne. And more than that, he says, my love for him will never be taken away. That I'm going to give him my love. And it doesn't matter what happens. He's always going to have my love. And he says this profoundly here. I will be his father and he will be my son. God's going to insert himself into the family tree of David. You see, David wants to build a house for God, but God's going to build a house for him, a legacy, a reputation. He's going to build for him a kingdom, and it's all going to come through this son. But here's the deal. When we turn like the next page, none of it goes the way that we expect. None of David's sons are able to bring this prophecy to fulfillment. Uh, the first son of David that we know about is actually unnamed. He is a child that is actually conceived uh, after, um, after David and Bathsheba have that night on the roof. And so Bathsheba becomes pregnant, and when she gives birth to the son, God says, I'm not going to allow your line to go through this son who is conceived in sin. He's going to die after seven days, David. And this child dies. David has another son named Amnon. Amnon falls in love with his sister Tamar, and he rapes her. And David does nothing about it. Well, when Absalom, who is another son of David, sees that his father will not judge his brother for the rape of his sister, I know, your head's spinning right now. This is what's actually happening. Absalom kills Amnon. So one brother kills the other, and then he flees. And David doesn't do anything about Absalom. In fact, eventually Absalom comes back and he takes the throne away from his father, David. David loses the throne and has to fight and eventually have Absalom killed to get the throne back. After Absalom, there's a son named Adonijah. Adonijah tries to steal the throne from Solomon, his brother, but Solomon kills Adonijah, and Solomon is the one who will actually hold on to the throne for the longest. He loves God, and it seems that he is the one that God is speaking about in this prophecy because he is the one who builds the temple. And then something terrible happens. Solomon ends up being this guy who is chasing women his entire life, and so God says, I'm going to actually take 10 of the tribes of Israel away from him. 
he loses like 90% of the land that he has. And that temple that he builds will eventually be destroyed. The sons of David completely fail. And not only that, but David fails his own sons. We are told that David has 27 sons, of which we know stories of about seven of them. And in every one of those stories, David is absent. He does not show his love to his sons, nor does he show his discipline towards his sons. And so these sons become the worst version of themselves because their father does not raise or love them appropriately. In a sense, every son and daughter of the nation of Israel suffer because the sons of David cannot step into the prophecy. In fact, we know that when Babylon comes in, the sons of Israel become eunuchs, and the daughters of Israel become concubines to Babylonian royalty. The prophecy seemingly fails. And yet the prophecy continues to live on. It keeps being talked about. It keeps being referred to. And it doesn't matter how far it gets past the sons of David's lifetime, they keep talking about the day will come when the son of David will rule. We find this happening 350 years later in Psalm 89. This is Psalm 89, verse 49. Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? This is a psalmist asking, God, when are you going to fulfill the prophecy to the son of David? Uh, 375 years later, this is Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us, a child is born, and to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever, and the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Jeremiah says this 400 years later. This is Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up from David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he'll be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. Why? Does the prophecy seem to live on even if it seems like it's impossible for it to be fulfilled? Why are people still talking about the son of David when the king, the rule of David, already seems like it is over? It's because of this. The promise was that God was going to do this, not that the sons of David were going to do it. Let me say that again. The promise was that God was going to do this through the sons of David, not that the sons of David were going to do this themselves. Let me go back to the prophecy out of 2 Samuel 7. God says, I will raise an offspring. I will establish his kingdom. I will establish his throne. This is a work that God is going to do, not that David is going to do or that his sons are going to do, but God's going to do it through them. But rest assured, this is God's work. And that's intentional. Because if God had said to David, you need to do this, this, and this for the prophecy to come true, friends, let me tell you, David couldn't do it. If he had told, told David's sons, if you do A and B and C and do them perfectly, then this will be the result. It doesn't matter how great the promise was. They would not have been able to do it. You and I, we are just 
too soaked in sin to meet any kind of standard or any kind of expectation, even our own. We don't even meet our own standards. So this uh, last week, uh, Liam drives a 1979 Cadillac. It is so sick. If you see in the parking lot, it's the coolest car in the parking lot. Uh, The battery died on it, which is a thing that happens to car batteries, especially old car batteries. And I thought to myself, this is a perfect moment to teach my son about how to work on his car. That was the goal, teaching moment for my son. Here was the problem. Every socket that I needed for this job was missing. Every one of them. I had 52 other ones, but the three that I needed, those were the three that were not there. And I was losing my mind. And I could see that I was losing my mind. I could see that I was becoming irrational. I could see that I was getting very uniquely frustrated with the situation. And I could tell that I was scaring my son. The goal was to teach him, and yet I was scaring myself. And I kept telling myself, calm down. Calm down, calm down. And you know what I couldn't do? Calm down. Even when I wanted to, and even when I knew it was the right thing, and even when I knew that my temper was getting in the way of what I ultimately wanted, I still couldn't do it. And you're not much better, so don't feel good about yourself. Because I know you've been to the DMV, and I know when you went to the DMV, you thought, this is going to be bad. But you still got frustrated. I know that you've gone through TSA and you thought, I need to be patient, but you still complained at the end of it. I know that you have gotten frustrated with the things around you, even when you were well prepared for how annoying they were going to be. Even when we try to be better, we are still always ourselves. We try to be better, we are still always ourselves. And instead of God asking for David or his sons to do something perfectly, God decided to be the one to do it perfectly. You know, the Hebrew word that is used here to describe the way that God is going to love the son of David is a word that you'll hear in sermons from time to time. It is the Hebrew word chesed, which means love. But wrapped up in this Hebrew word of love are really three separate ideas. The first one is affection. That God is going to show this son of David affection. Uh, uh, just general warmth and, and tenderness towards him. He's going to feel love towards the son of David. But he also has, in this word chesed, this idea of faithfulness, that regardless of what happens, God's always going to be on his side. God's always going to be right there with him. God's always going to support him in this. And finally, you have this idea of kindness, that God's going to give him even what he doesn't deserve. That God's going to love this person with just this tenderness that we would look at and go, God, you are so good to us. And God loves us in the same way, and it begins in this passage. Because what he is saying here is that, David, I have loved you with this kind of love, with affection, with faithfulness, and with kindness. And now I'm going to love your son with faithfulness and kindness and tenderness. And because that, he says, and for those who's going to come after, I'm going to love them in the same way. This is why this is different. In the king who came before David, his name was Saul. God made Saul do everything perfect. 
The standard for Saul was be perfect, and Saul never was, and he lost the throne. And friends, if the standard for any of us was ever going to be perfection, none of us was ever going to make it. But with David, he says, no, now with you and with your son, I'm going to begin to love you differently, and I'm going to love your son differently, and I'm going to love those who come after differently because of it. And so this is what people are waiting for. They believed that no word of God would ever fail. That was what they had always been taught. And so since God had prophesied that he would do this, and since the promise was that God would love them, we find them 300, 400 years later still waiting for the son of David to come. Uh, There's a writer named Scott Hubbard. He says this, that they needed a son of David, like David, yet also more than that. He says they needed a son of David who was not just anointed with oil, but was also anointed with the Holy Spirit. One who would slay not only Goliath, but death. One who would win his bride, not by shedding another man's blood, but his own. And one whose end was not a grave, but a throne. They needed one who was like David, in the line of David, and yet different than anything that had come. And that's exactly what the angel announces to Mary when he comes. If you have your Bibles again, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. I'm actually going to pick it up here in verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You're going to conceive and give birth to a son, and you're going to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit's going to come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the one to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Inside of this news to Mary is so many of the things that we've been talking from out of 2 Samuel 7. She is told that she's going to have a son and that he's going to be the son of David. Now, in years past, you might have heard that phrase and passed over it because the angels are exciting, the shepherds are sweet, we like the magi, and the son of David seemed this title. But after we look at 2 Samuel 7, we can see that when she hears the word, the son of David will be born, you know where her mind goes. This is the one. This is the child. This is the one who God's going to put his favor on and never take it away from. This is the one who's going to be the son of God. And this is going to be the one who's going to establish a kingdom that will never end. And Mary believes it. If you don't really grasp that yet, she gives a song, a Magnificat is what it's called, just one chapter later where she is very political in what she thinks is going to happen. She knows that this is going to be the son of David who's going to take a throne. She knows that this is the way that it's going to happen. And if you ever want to know why both Matthew and Luke begin with genealogies, the reason why is they're showing that this is literally a son of David, one who has come down from the line so that he can fulfill this prophecy. But then there's a second idea in here as well, that he's not only going to be a son, and he's not only going to be the son of David, he is going to be the son of the Most High. She says he's going to be called the Son of God. There was 
an assumption in the Middle East uh, at this time is that if you were royalty, then you had been adopted by God. This is kind of common thinking. You'll find this kind of language associated with the kings of that day all the time, that God is their father because they had been adopted by the kingship. That is not what he's saying here. And that's the point of the virgin birth, that this is not one who's just going to be called a son of God or adopted as a son of God, but God himself is going to bring this to pass and that God's blood is going to flow through his veins. He will be in and of himself God in identity and substance. And he says this, He's going to be a son that I love. You know, we have two times in the Bible where God speaks to mankind about Jesus. In the baptism, there's a voice that comes down from heaven speaking to Jesus, and also at the transfiguration where God speaks to the apostles that are there. Both times God says the same thing. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Every time God speaks to Jesus or about Jesus, he always proclaims his love for Jesus. And one of the things that Jesus is constantly doing is talking about how much God does indeed love him. And he tells people, in fact, the love that you're receiving from me is just simply the love that the Father has already given me. Jesus can't quit talking about how much God has loved him and how much he loves them as a result. So in that manger, the love between God and David and the love between God and Jesus, what's actually happening there? It's just beginning to be offered to us. This special relationship that existed between God and David is now available to us. This relationship that existed between God and Jesus as father and son, we are now invited into it. And it's done, again, out of God's love, not just for David and not just for Jesus, but for us. This is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, that is you and me, that he sent his only begotten son, so that those who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. And one of the ver- words I love in that passage is that God so loved you and I. God has not kind of loved you and I. He has so loved us that he sent his son Jesus to come live and die. This is a quote by a pastor out of the 1800s. His name is R.G. Lee. This is a long quote. Hang in there with me. He says this, Christ, who in eternity rested motherless upon the Father's bosom, and in time rested fatherless upon a woman's bosom, clasping the ancient of days who had become the infant of days. What a deep descent from the heights of glory to the depths of shame. From the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth. From exaltation to humiliation. From the thorn to a tree. From dignity to debasement. From worship to wrath. From the halls of heaven to the nails of earth. From the coronation to the curse. From the glory place to the gory place. And Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined. Born in a stable. Cradled in a cattle trough. Wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty. No room for him who made all rooms, no place for him who'd made known all places. O deep humiliation of the creator, born of the creature woman. But in his descent was the dawn of mercy. And because we cannot assent to him, he descends to us. Now when we read that quote, and it's a beautiful long quote, some of that might have gone over your head, but when we, get, when we read it, one of the things that happens to me is that I feel guilty. Because I feel like God has truly loved me 
and I feel like I kind of love him. That if we had to compare loves for how God has actually loved me in all of my sinfulness, I just simply can't compare. And the instinct that I have is try harder. Try harder. And I think that's the instinct most of us have when we hear the gospel preached to us. Try harder. The very nature of the gospel is it says that you can't try hard enough. But my instincts are still to try harder for Jesus until eventually I think you and I all burn out on trying to be good enough. Or I end up feeling such um, rejection by my own deeds I just give up on the whole affair. And I say this whole thing of trying to pursue God is just impossible. I'm tired of the guilt. I'm tired of the shame. And I just leave the whole entire thing behind. Look, the passage is not meant to invoke guilt. In fact, if that's what you're feeling, that's the small voice of Satan behind you. It's not intended to invoke guilt. It's intended to invoke awe at how much God has profoundly loved you. And what I want you to know is that it is not difficult for God to love you. It is not difficult for God to love you. He finds you incredibly easy to love. He cannot stop himself from loving you. And that's not because there is anything great in you. It's because that is simply who he is. He is love. And since he is love, he has no problem giving love to yes you. And to yes me, even soaked in all of our sinfulness, he has no problem giving it away. He does not need to talk himself into loving you. He simply can't help it because he made you. That's who he is. And the reality that God loves people who are unworthy, it simply makes the entire story more beautiful. That's part of it, right? That the more that I feel unworthy of love, of God's love, the more that I see my own love as being imperfect, that just makes the story more beautiful. Uh, you know, uh, a groom will learn this thing as he goes to find an engagement ring. You know, every guy who buys an engagement ring for a girl is trying to get her the biggest and the sparkliest one that will uh, embarrass her friends at how small and paltry theirs are. That's just the way the game is played. Don't deny it. I know it's true, women. So anyway, that's the goal. The biggest and shiniest, and that's what guys are trying to do for the women. And you're trying to get something that's just perfect. And yet what you come to learn when you actually study diamonds is that the perfect diamond is the one with more flaws. That's, in fact, the imprecise cuts, and it's the specks inside of it that cause a diamond to be truly bright. The most sparkliest diamonds, the ones that truly grab your eyes, the ones that have true clarity, are ones that actually have more flaws, not less flaws. Isn't that ironic? You think you want perfect, but in fact, some flaws and actually make it more beautiful. And friends, that's true with ourselves in this story. When you and I feel sinful— when you and I are frustrated with ourselves, when we find that we have not met our own standards again, when you and I are tired of our own sin and we are embarrassed to even hear the story of Jesus again because it's so different from where our hearts go, it's in that moment that we need to pause and remember it is not hard for God to love you. That he loves you with his whole heart and that our flaws actually make the story more beautiful. That we don't need to run away or give up or try to muscle down and make this thing happen. We simply need to live in his love and recognize this is how the story begins. You know, this week, uh, an astronomer took the most clear picture of the sun that had ever been taken. I think I've got it. I'll put it up here. It doesn't look quite so great on these Costco Vizio screens, but nonetheless, you, 
It's the clearest it's ever been taken at the highest resolution. And what I thought was unique is that you and I go about living underneath the sun with it shining up above us all the time. We are always kind of in the presence of the sun. We can't get away from the sun. And yet we have this moment where suddenly we see it clearly. And we stand in awe of it again. Friends, that is what Christmas is meant to be for us. That it is that time when suddenly the sun becomes clear to us again. And we see him. And we see the story finally clearly for what it was meant to be. The story is meant to draw us near to him. It's meant to change us. It's meant to help us to see the love, uh, love of God in such a way that we cannot help but give it away to other people. People who are like us and people who are not like us. People who are easy to love and people who are not easy to love because we know that we are difficult to love at times too, and yet God does so with great joy. You know, Valentine's Day might be the romantic, most romantic holiday, but Christmas is a holiday of love. Not because of how we love each other or what's on Hallmark. Because of how God has loved us. And we get to live in that joy as we get near to that day. So would you pray with me? Lord, we do love you. And Lord, the brightest of love that we've ever had for you, it is dimmed by your love for us. Lord, give us a sense of awe and wonder at the love you have. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.